And so let's turn to the word. It's from the book of Romans today. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to focus on the first few verses, but I'm going to read the whole chapter because we're going to go through the entire, the themes that are given in the chapter, and that's Romans chapter 14. And if you found it, please rise in reverence for the word of God. Hear now the word of the Lord. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it, is, it, thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let's pray. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I, I told a quick uh, illustration on the first Saturday of um, this year. It's about um, an interview that a reporter, Mike Wallace, did many years ago. And it was an interview with Yehiel Denur. And Yehiel Denur was a concentration camp survivor who testified against Adolf Eichmann at the Nuremberg trials. And so what happens was when Adolf Eichmann would enter into the courtroom, um, Yehiel, when he saw him, he actually came face to face with a man who had sent him to Auschwitz 18 years earlier. And the trial happened in 1961, so 18 years earlier when um, he was sent to Auschwitz. So he was face to face with this man who had put him through this torturous, torturous, horrific uh, experience. And when Denur saw him, he started to weep uncontrollably. He started to sob and sob and sob, and then it became so uncontrollable that Denur fainted, and he collapsed on the floor. And then the judicial officer had to come and actually pick him up. The, the judge had to pound his gavel and then pause the meeting because there was an uproar. And people were wondering, was it because of hatred? Why did he faint? Was it because of fear? Was it because of the trauma that he had re-experienced when he saw this um, Nazi architect of the Holocaust? And so when he was being interviewed, this is, uh, what Denier, this is how Denier uh, responded. He explained to him that it wasn't because of any of these things that he fainted. He realized when he saw Eichmann face to face that he was not like the God-like army officer that he had perceived in his mind that sent so many people to their deaths. When he saw Eichmann, he saw Eichmann and he realized he was just an ordinary man. And this is what Denur said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable of doing this. I am exactly like him. When he saw that this was just an ordinary man, that's when he started to shake and sob and collapse because he saw that what he was able to do, he also himself was able to commit. What we recognize in our faith is that we are depraved. 
we have these sinful tendencies. When the shackles and the chains come off and we gain this power to exercise what we want, our will, then it becomes more and more evil. And it's because we have this pattern that we call the pattern of sin. Because we have the pattern of sin, we continue to sin. And the more power that you would have, the more egregious that exercising of sin would be. But we believe that that pattern of sin, as dangerous and as destructive and as powerful as it is, that pattern of sin has been broken by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's been broken because of Jesus Christ. And that's why when we gather, we gather in celebration because that pattern of sin that anybody is able to commit has been completely defeated and broken. And what are we doing now? We're living this life of holiness. The pattern that is broken, we get a new pattern now. And this is what Edmund Clowney wrote on this, and I'm going to quote him here. It is the reality of sin in the heart of everyone that patterns the evil and oppression in the world. Holiness means that the pattern is broken, that the sinner is transformed. The only way to break this pattern is through believing in Jesus Christ. If we, if we repent of our sins, the destruction of the pattern of death that we could not get out of on our own, if we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus, it's Jesus who frees us from death and grants us eternal life. And this is why we say, repent, believe, turn from sin, and turn to Christ. And Jesus Christ tells us in John chapter 3 that that's only possible if you are born again. That, mean God, that means God gives you a new spirit. And with this new spirit, it's after God we start to model ourselves. It's the new pattern set before us. That's what we mean by sanctification. Today in this age, I believe that the fight is as great as ever. And that fight is for our sanctification. As we continue to study the word of God, we see how fiercely the New Testament writers fought for sanctification. They were not lax in their attitude to be holy. They were unrelenting. I'm going to go through a lot of Bible verses today, and even in the passage that were read, we're only going to hit it for a little bit. But if you listen to the New Testament writers, when Paul was talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.21, he says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. He was fighting for it. He was saying, you should do this because you want to be set apart. You want to be useful to the master. In 1 Thessalonians Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica in 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We become sanctified because we're looking towards something, and that's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only Paul, but the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Sanctification was a key part of his understanding of the Christian faith. The writer of Hebrews also writes in Hebrews 13, 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. What's the purpose of Jesus suffering to sanctify his people? Jesus says it himself in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is a huge part of our walk in life. Did you know that? Is that also a big part of your Christian life? Do you seek and aim and strive unrelentlessly to become sanctified, to become holy? Because that's what all the New Testament writers are writing about. That's what Jesus himself is talking about. In 1 Corinthians, and we've gone over it, and I love that we've gone over it because I don't have to explain too much. You can just look back to you know, the sermon if you need more, but I'm sure you all remember. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And were such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We are called to live a holy life unto God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, this is how you know if you have been born of God. John writes to the church, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. We are justified by faith alone, yes, but that faith produces fruit in accordance with the pattern of God now. No longer do we follow the pattern and the ways of the world. But if you are justified, then you are being sanctified and we start to produce fruit in accordance with the pattern of God. And when I say we must fight for our sanctification, it is because sanctification is a fight. There will be opposition. The call on our lives now is to fight these things we were once trapped by, enslaved by, because it was those things that kept us from the kingdom of God. Don't you see, following the patterns of the world 
is following the things that kept you from God in the first place. If you have been practicing any of the things that Paul mentions in Corinthians chapter 6, you have to stop it. You have to cut it out. Why? Because those things will not be in the kingdom of heaven. If you harbor those things, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Some might respond, oh, but maybe God will change my heart last minute, you know? God is calling on you to change those things now. That's why he gave us the word. What makes you think that your disobedience to God will ever change if you don't do it now when you see it in the word of God? I want to give you some reasons why sin is so dangerous, as if it wasn't obviously enough, but just a reminder perhaps. Number one, those with a new heart, they hate the sin that separated us from God in the first place because sin separates us from God. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You hate the sin because sin separates you from God. Number two, sin enslaves us. We call it now by different names in modern times. We call them addictions. Oh, I'm so addicted to this. Or we call them obsessions or fixations. The Word of God calls them sin. And sin will destroy you. In John chapter 8, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the son has set you free, you are no longer a slave to the pattern of sin. Number three, sin lessens our love for God. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes in verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We hate sin. Christians hate sin because sin is the pattern of death. And Christians love holiness because holiness is the pattern of life. And as, as I've said before, this holiness is something that we have been called to fight for. In our struggle against sin and our striving for holiness, there will be opposition, though. There will be barriers that we face. And I think we face at least two main bar- barriers that we're going to go over this morning. 
And as I've mentioned them in previous sermons, I go over them again, especially because it's necessary for us to understand to get to the final point, which is the title of the message. So this message is multifaceted, many points, but I wanted to go over them because it's going to lead us to understanding what the tyranny of the weaker brother is. And the two main barriers that keep us from sanctification are antinomianism and legalism. Antinomianism means anti, which is against, and namas, which is law. So antinomianism is anti-law or against the law. A lot of people who think they are Christian feel like there's liberty in Christ. You're able to do anything. Perhaps they even believe maybe because of the law, we were driven to Christ, but now that we are in Christ, we are no longer bound by any law. However, the Christian view is that even though the ceremonial laws, uh, the dietary laws, these things were fulfilled in Christ and therefore abrogated, nevertheless, those laws that are rooted in the very character of God are his moral law, and the moral laws are important because they reveal his character. And this is crucial to understand. This means that for the Christian, the moral law's relevance isn't because of its values as a means in which we achieve salvation, but rather its relevance is of the revelation of the pattern by which we are to proceed in sanctification, therefore pleasing to God. I'm going to explain a little bit about what that is. There are churches today that will scoff at the idea that obeying God's laws are good. Antinomianism is an epidemic, and they continue to teach that the Old Testament has no relevance on the Christian life. And this is why we hear things where people say that they are carnal Christians, right? A carnal Christian is an oxymoron. And just as a note, if someone, this is a side note, but if someone puts an adjective or an adjectival word in front of Christian, immediately you should raise red flags in your mind. At the core of the antinomianism or carnal Christian idea, what they hold is that the person can be saved, and this is what the essence is. They can be saved, meaning they can receive Jesus Christ the Savior, but they won't have him as Lord. You can receive Christ the Savior, but not have him as Lord. You can receive a new heart, but never produce any fruit that flows from that new heart. You can remain utterly worldly until you die. And that's why the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement is so prevalent and so deceptive at the same time. You get what you want because you're still on the throne of your heart. You are the governing center of your life. You are the core and center of your being. You think you want the benefits of Christ while keeping a mistress on the side. You have the profession of faith. You say, yes, I am a Christian, but you do not have the fruit. As far as I can remember, up until recently, up until the recent years, 
people had always wondered if revival would come to New York City. Uh, I grew up in Queens. New York City has always been in my heart. I was born in Manhattan in a hospital that's now closed down. <laughs> so no more St. Vincent's. But, uh, you know, New York City has always been in my heart. And people, as far as I can remember, up until recent times, have always wondered if revival would ever come to New York City. And the wisest response I've heard was this. While God can do anything, no. That was the response. While God can do anything, the answer is no. In regard to revival ever coming to this area. And do you know why? Because even professing Christians in New York City, what he saw, and this is a pastor uh, that pastored thousands and thousands of people. They don't strive for holiness. Even professing Christians do not strive for holiness. They not only sleep with their girlfriends, they live with their girlfriends. And all these things continue to go on. Because striving for holiness is trying to get as close to God as possible. That's the striving part there. So why would God bring any sort of revival when even the people that profess him as Lord and Savior hate his character? And the other barrier to sanctification is legalism. While it comes in many forms, ultimately legalism is the idea that your works, that means what you believe to be the fulfillment of God's commands, through your works, you can attain salvation. This is directly contradictory to what the Bible says. Even in Romans 3.20, it says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. This is directly contradictory to what the Bible says. In, in our mind, we think, yeah, legalism, legalism, bad, bad, bad. But in my experience, the longer you have been attending church, this is a far more dangerous trap that many fall into and they don't know. Antinomianism, yeah, yeah, tell me, I was like, feel a little guilty, sure. But legalism, no one knows that they're in legalistic heresy. That means in respect to your salvation, you believe that the works of the law grant you legal status legal status that you need before God. I tithe, I attend church, and the list goes on. One of the more sadder conversations I've had was with an older gentleman. He was much older than I was. He was around my parents' age. And when he found out that I was a pastor, he came to me and he started to tell me, yeah, sure, he wasn't perfect. I wasn't perfect, pastor. But I did my best. I went to church. I gave offerings. Maybe I wasn't the best person, sure. Maybe I could have done better. But I'm sure God will understand. And that's what he said. And I told him, no. It's only by placing your faith in Jesus as Lord, are you then saved? And he was dismissive. Of course, of course, I believe in Jesus, you know, like very dismissive. But I think I did enough to get to heaven. That's what he said after all that. 
Of course I believe in Jesus, but I think I did enough to get into heaven. I feel like he just wanted some sort of affirmation from me or for me to give him some kind of affirmation. That's ridiculous. That's like wanting to buy a multi-million dollar home after you put in $20 as a down payment saying, I did my best, I should still get the house. No, the down payment that we received as Christians was the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ has paid the entire debt. Jesus paid, him, paid it all. And that's why we sing, and all to him I now owe. Another form of legalism is when you major in minors. That's when you focus a great deal on minor matters of the law at the expense of weightier matters. Right? We saw this happen especially in Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus is saying, Woe to the Pharisees, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They should have done the tithe. They should have done these things. But you can't do this and think that you can neglect even the heavier matters, which was to love your neighbor, which we went over last week. And I thank Pastor Paul for doing that because last minute I said, hey, brother, you have to preach. And he's like, what? <laughs> anyway, praise God for you, brother. I think it was Saturday I told him, huh? But, you know, the Bible says we need to be ready in and out of season. And God does test us. I'm not testing you. But that's what it is. You hear a parable like the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then you're like, what's wrong with that? And yet we do this all the time. We talk about these ideas, and who cares about who gets crushed underneath the ideas? Who is my neighbor? Give me a lofty idea. And Jesus is like, there he is, go do it. He's like, no, 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 but who is my neighbor? I feel like that's what we're facing today. And it's, it's crazy that we live in a society where now this is somehow the norm. And I was giving some examples of how people are, you know, suffering or dying because of this disease. And it's both ways. You get it. You could suffer. You get some vaccine. You could suffer. It is just what it is. I hope that the truth all comes out. We wait for what it is and people make their decisions rightly, wisely, with good counsel with their physician. And then this person responded, no, no, no. Yeah, you got you to gotta break a few eggs to make an omelet. So you don't care about the people who died? What is going on here? And that's like a natural thing. Yeah, yeah some people just have to die. That's insanity. That's not Christian. And so, where are we now? We have all these lofty ideas. We have people that are now following this communistic like principles and ideals where even in communism, people will say, like, it's, it, yeah, the, there, there's a story that uh, a former communist was writing about where he was walking with another brother or comrade and they saw someone that was poor and wanted to give him money and said, no, don't do it, don't do it. It's like, I know you want to. And this person was like passionate. He was pained that this person was poor on the street. He was like, don't do it. 
because this person has to suffer. And when this person suffers, he will then have in him that arisen passion to revolt. And then he eventually left communism. He's like, to make this idea work, you have to kill how many people? And we'll get into this in a little bit too. But that's legalism. And it's happening now, just like it did 2,000 years ago. And again, I said we'll get to even more of that in a little bit. I want to just take a look at the text. Uh, As for one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And some people might be like, well, shots fired at the vegetarians and whatnot. Um, yeah, I guess, I don't know, what else can I say? But in my earlier years, when I was younger, when I was a young man, I made it a point to always make fun of a vegetarian to their face. Only because I wanted to see how they were, not because I didn't like them, I had many vegetarian, vegan friends, but I wanted to see how they would respond. That was my thing. And this is why my friends were not vast or many. It was very few. <laughs> anyway, but... Um, I wanted to see how they would respond. And there were some who would roll with it really well. Some who would take it in the chin and try to give it right back to you. And there were some who took it and would take very high offense at my jokes. Um, And the reason why I did that when I was young is because, number one, I was young. But I wanted to know who took it to the religious level. Who took eating these foods, especially if they were professing Christians, as if eating meat was some kind of sin? Obviously, don't do this now. So if you do come to me and you eat only vegetables, I will not make fun of you. That's kind of juvenile. But Paul is addressing the church in Rome because they were also facing this struggle. And this struggle is uh, what in philosophical terms or in theological terms, it's what is an adiaphora. An adiaphora is something that is morally indifferent, okay? An adiaphora is something that is morally indifferent. So the struggle that they were facing is what is adiaphora and what is morally good or evil? What has an inherent moral value, right? So adiaphora, again, is something that is morally indifferent. And people wanted to attribute a moral value to anything and everything. Anything and everything somehow has a moral value. And that's how we market products now. Like this has a moral value to it. If you think about how it was made, who made it, who we give the money to, everything has a moral value. And that's the generation that we have today. That's how we market ourselves or market our products the reason why this product is good is because it's morally superior philosophically speaking this is juvenile there will be no end then because there would only be bickering about every product and substance that we use and it will never end just eat it just use it it's fine when paul is talking about it's fine but Do it for the glory of God. Eat it, use it, but do it for the glory of God. But in the church, and this is how diverse the church was back then and how diverse the church is here. There there will be weaker Christians. He calls them weaker brothers, weaker Christians, who will have these opinions. Opinion is 
from the word dialogue, and this is why we are to have a dialogue, right, when we have an opinion. But it just goes to show that Paul understood the diversity of the people that will be in the church. And in the church, there will, there will be people of strong faith, and there will be people weak in faith. And I want you to make a note about how Paul doesn't say one whose faith is weak, but rather one who is weak in faith. So he's not referring to one with feeble faith, but someone who's full, who doesn't fully understand the conduct implied by faith. Maybe someone whose faith is a little ineffective now. That's what it means, one who is weak in faith. When someone becomes a Christian, they do not come from an empty slate. You don't just reset to zero and become a Christian. There's no such thing. Mao Zedong would famously compare Chinese people to blank sheets of paper. And when he was writing this, he was talking about the poor and how their poverty would give rise to the desire for change. This is what he wrote. However, there is no such thing. People have their cultures. Even as poor as they are, they bring culture in with them. And Mao killed an estimated 65 million Chinese people to have his quote-unquote great leap forward. The Apostle Paul, however, tells the church to welcome, welcome the weak Christian, and he even goes ahead, even more than that, he says, don't argue with him. And again, the word for opinions is from the word dialogue. Opinions should promote dialogue, but not quarreling. And he makes the distinction that the person of strong faith will eat anything, while the weak person will eat only vegetables. We are not given the reason why that weaker Christians ate only vegetables, but in Corinth, when we studied Corinthians, it was because meat would be prepared in a way that was offensive to them. They were offered up to idols. So Paul, writing from Corinth now to the Romans, may have had a similar issue. And while eating only vegetables is not an authentic Christian teaching, you are still to respect those that hold to this position, is what Paul is saying. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This is obviously on point. Even 2,000 years ago, the people that only ate vegetables and the people that ate all foods were at odds with each other. And we can see that the one who eats everything despises the vegetarian or vegan, and the vegetarian or vegan passes judgment on the one who eats everything. So whether you are of weak or strong faith, Paul is reminding them that they are both welcomed by God and that it is God who is able to make someone stand whether you are weak or strong. So Paul is writing to address how the church should respond to the weaker brother with this particular scruple. The person who eats only vegetables belongs to Christ. The person who eats everything belongs to Christ. How dare we pass judgment on Christ's servant? So if we are then to judge, 
we are to judge according to the standards of sacred scripture and not by the traditions of man. When I was younger, an elder of the church came up to the group of youth I was with. I was a part of the youth group. And he proceeded to give like a little speech. I, I don't know what prompted this, but he just walked up to us while we were just chilling. And he gave us a speech, and he started off by telling us that how the Presbyterian church is ruled by elders and not the pastor, okay? He would say, the Presbyterian church is ruled by elders and not the pastor. He obviously didn't know anything about the interchangeability of the word presbyter, bishop, and shepherd, and he should have listened to my sermon two weeks ago. But after he had established that authority, he started to tell us all the wrong things that we were doing. He pointed at the girls saying, you shouldn't wear lipstick. He said when we were about to go out, you shouldn't go out and spend money on Sundays, etc., etc. I even heard that there was a school around here that made you sign a contract that you wouldn't drink or dance while you were enrolled in the school. There's nothing explicit about these things in Scripture but the people that held up these standards, that's the point. The people that held up these standards, to them, it became the ultimate test to see if you were a good Christian or not. That was the test. How are you a good Christian? And they would have these standards. I was trained as a pastor in a culturally conservative church as well. I don't think that the people in that church likes to see their pastoral staff drink alcohol. They wanted their staff to be set apart in that regard. Maybe it was some sort of standard of holiness that they thought. Somehow when you drank alcohol, your level of holiness is decreased, right? It's like, ooh, I don't see you as holy anymore. Your sanctification is affected. Now, I'm not talking about drunkenness. That is clearly a sin in the Bible. But drinking alcohol is not. I personally still don't drink, not as a rule. I just don't have alcohol. Uh, but I recognize that I am surrounded by a legalistic culture that ties in, not the drunkenness part, but the legalistic culture that ties in just by simply having a glass of wine with holiness. Somehow those things are tied together. You continue on in the passage, and you see that people also have other particular scruples, that they were setting apart other days as more holy than the other. Apparently, some believe that this one day was holier than the other, or this group of days was a holiday, which is where we get holy day, and this is, um, flip that, and this is uh, where and other people believe that all days were equally holy. Now, he doesn't say if it's regarding a day in the week or a set of days in the calendar, but it doesn't matter. It boils down to whether or not you believe that the thing that you are doing is sinful. That's what it boils down to. Take drinking, for example. If you believe that drinking is sinful, and you're wrong, by the way. Drinking is not sinful. But if you believe that drinking is sinful for whatever reason, and then you drink, is that a sin? The answer is yes, because we read the passage, right? The answer is yes, it's a sin. 
If you believe that drinking is a sin and then you drink, it is a sin because you did what you believed is against God. That means you took to sin, it took sin to do that thing because you wanted to do something that was against God and that was your attitude. Again, not because the thing itself is sinful, but what is sinful is doing something you believe to be a sin and that takes sin to do that thing. Because in one sense, there is no such thing as adiaphora in behavior. In 1 Corinthians uh, 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And this is why we take extra care when we go to another country, come alongside a missionary. We take extra care with our behaviors and actions around them. Maybe you don't slurp your pasta in Italy. That's disgusting. But in Japan, you slurp nice and loud. People who eat their noodles quietly are people who are not to be trusted. They're shady people. Anyway, I got these are cultural matters I'm referencing. But apart from directly offering, like apart from you directly offering meat to the idols, which is a sin, or getting drunk, which is a sin, what you eat, how you eat, is a matter that is Adiaphorus. But what happens when a brother or sister comes into our church with this particular scruple? How do you deal with them? If someone is convinced that some, even though that something is adiaphorous, is morally evil, what do you do? You respect their conscience. The last thing you want to do, and this is what Paul is writing, the last thing you want to do is be a scandal on, be a stumbling block to your brother or sister, especially if they're weak in faith. You do not want to stumble them. You want to encourage them to do good. What do you believe is good? Then let's do that. You don't want to encourage them to violate something they believe to be a violation of the law of God. And this is what he says in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And we see in Paul, Paul's heart that he would bend over backwards not to stumble a weaker brother. So maybe if you have people that find it weird that a pastor drinks, the pastor doesn't drink in front of them. Well, not a big deal. Maybe he just does it at his home. Or the point is, it isn't because of the thing itself. You're not agreeing with the people that drinking or eating meat is bad. But you don't want to stumble them. You'd rather uplift them. You want to do things that uplift the other, not only focus on the things that you want to bicker and quarrel about. And this is why he wrote in 1 Corinthians 8, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's how serious Paul was about making sure he wanted to encourage the faith, especially of the weaker brother. I don't think he was being facetious. I think he was being serious. He was willing to give up his Christian liberty so that another brother or sister would not stumble. Now we're going to get to the main part of the message. What about that last part of legalism? Well, what happens then when you have the weaker brother who wants to now elevate their particular scruple to a level of a moral standard? What happens then? And this moral standard is somehow to be adhered to if you want to be a Christian, a member in good standing, or even an officer in the church. 
Now what happens is that the weaker brother then becomes this juridical brother, this legislator, and now uses that authority to bind the consciences of all the people that are under him and destroy Christian liberty. And the real question that we are facing, so I'm telling you, this, this, is, a, this is a complex issue, this is difficult, but the Bible does address it. How do you know then who is the weaker brother? How do you know who is the weaker brother if they're going to be a leader? You can't have the weaker brother be a leader. Again, he would bind the consciences unnecessarily of the congregants that he meant to lead. How do you know who is the weaker brother? How do you make sure that the weaker brother does not become the juridical brother, the person in power? And I hope you can answer this question if you listen to the sermon on the importance of leaders. If you have a pastor that would impose an extra-biblical standard on the church or its potential officers, like a non-drinking agreement, you have a weaker brother. You have a weaker brother, that's a pastor. The standards are in the sacred writ, and drinking is not one of them. There is, again, a strong prohibition against drunkenness, but not drinking. We cannot have weaker brothers as ministers and officers in the church where they will unnecessarily bind the consciences of its members and therefore stumble those they mean to minister to. And here's the, here's the question that you would think. What if you already have a weaker brother up there? And can you see now why it's such a complex issue? Why this is such a complex issue, but it's so important that we tackle it. What happens when you have a weaker brother up there? In Galatians chapter 2, Peter was fine eating with the Gentiles. He was living in that Christian liberty. He was fine. But when the people from James came, it says, the circumcision party or the Judaizers, he stopped eating with the Gentile Christians. These people, the Judaizers, they, are, they were Jews by custom. This is what they had grown up with. Again, no blank slate, right? They had grown by in the custom of Judaism before they were Christians. But they were more than that. They were, they were of the circumcision party. Apparently, they thought that if you wanted to live rightly, you had to follow, you had to still follow Jewish cultural laws. And these people are heretics or heretics who went around reinstituting dietary laws and circumcision among Christian believers. And why is this relevant? Because this is relevant because you see this is a version of the weaker brother's error. The people came from the circumcision party, the Judaizers. They couldn't live with the liberty that came with Christ, and they couldn't give up Old Testament practices. These are practices that Christ had already fulfilled, and they couldn't live without it. And maybe it was just weird. Maybe at first they're like, it's weird. I still want to do it. I mean, this is how I grew up. But it became more than that, and they started to demand it. And in Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes this to the church in Galatia. You were running well, past tense. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That's why it's so important that we know the law rightly. We follow the law. We don't add to it because when we start adding to it, you are being legalistic. And you are someone that maybe is exactly like this. You were running well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In the case of the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. He's like saying, I wish those people who keep on saying that you need to be circumcised would completely cut off themselves, like completely emasculate. That's how mad he was. Now, mind you, this is Paul who was saying, for anyone, I will become anything if it means that I could preach the gospel of Christ. For the weaker brother, I'll give up me forever. He's saying, all, he's saying all these things. But now when the circumcision party comes in saying you have to circumcise yourself, he said, I wish they would just cut off their whole thing. That's how mad he was. Why is that? And he says, <clears throat> he says these things because it is a threat against the gospel. The weaker brother will always try to bind the conscience of the believer. And this is what he's saying. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Tyranny always comes from some place or someone who believes that they're doing you good. It's for your good. So I want to mandate this thing. I'm going to make it compulsory, right? And that is a threat against the gospel. And this is what, Paul, what made Paul stand up and oppose Peter to his face. He's like, what you are doing is not the gospel. And he opposed Peter to his face. And he writes that in Galatians chapter 2 because it's such a serious issue. This is what made Paul, who would have done anything not to stumble the weaker brother. You know what he did when he took Timothy to proselytize to the Jews? He would have Timothy circumcised just because he didn't want to stumble the Jews. So it's not about circumcision. But when the Judaizers demanded everybody become circumcised, they demanded Titus become circumcised, he turned that down. He did a 180 on them. Because the weaker brother must not be allowed to establish laws where God has made us free, because that is tyranny. When the gospel was at stake, he fought ferociously. This is precisely why it is so important that we have wise leaders who understand the scriptures and will not impose rules and regulations where God has left us free, while never using their liberty to stumble a weaker brother, and at the same time, never compromise the gospel and go against what is explicit in the holy word of God. You see why this is such a heavy burden. And this is why we need to continue to pray for our leaders. Some people listen to the podcast that we did on Christian liberty. And I have to say, I'm glad you enjoyed it. But that's just the beginning. There will be some notoriously difficult questions that we are bound to face as a church but we must keep these things in mind as we move toward sanctification because it is for the glory of God. Again, let me remind you all, we must be relentless in the pursuit of truth in the scriptures and in the striving of our obedience to it. We must be relentless in the pursuit of the truth in the scriptures and in the striving of our obedience to it. And people ask uh, if I have like a new theme for this year I wanted to get rid of themes. I want to go with seasons. What season is our church facing? It doesn't necessarily have to be January 1st or whatever year. And the season I believe that we are facing is sanctification. Do not take it lightly. Do not take your sanctification lightly saying, you know what, God will forgive. 
That's antinomianism. Don't start adding stuff to what the law of God has not put in. Don't say, to be a good Christian, I'm a little bit more holy because I have this, this, this. That's not sanctification. But what God tells us to do, we strive with all our might. Why? Because God has made us free. So let us live free and worship God with all that we have. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the word that you give us. We understand that we are to be like the Bereans, where we hear something and we search your words diligently so that we can respond in faith and obedience to it. Oh God, forgive us of the times we took our sanctification too laxly, where we thought that we could do whatever we want because of some antinomian belief, or forgive us of the times that we were legalistic in our thinking, thinking because of these things I therefore am saved. Oh God, grant us the wisdom to discern between the two and help us to truly live in the liberty that you grant us, becoming that salt and light that you call us to be in the world. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on the word that has been given to us. And per perhaps we have a particular scruple. Perhaps we have a certain um, leaning toward either antinomianism or legalism. That's something that we must repent of. For God doesn't want us to stay where we are, but continue to pursue and strive for holiness, to become more like him, to love that journey of striving for holiness. Do you love it? Do you want to become more holy? Or do you strive after the things of the world? Let's repent of the things where we strive to follow the world. And let's ask God that he would change our hearts so that we could strive after him. Let's take time to pray.